The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Today's teaching text comes from Matthew 4, 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Karen. All right, yeah, grab a Bible, go to Matthew chapter 4. Man, I can just feel the energy in this room tonight, Uh, which is great because we're talking about some fun things. Um, So I'm going to need you. So bring the amens. That would be wonderful. Uh, Matthew 4, we are, believe it or not, are halfway uh, in our series on Do What Jesus Did, which if you are not familiar is the part three of this larger kind of discipleship framework we've been building out as a church over the past three years, starting with Be With Jesus. What does it look like to abide with him, to be in his presence through the practices like prayer and Bible reading and Sabbath and silence and solitude. And then we talked about after you be with Jesus, you become like him. That's part of what happens in that kind of furnace of solitude with the Lord is that you are shaped more and more into the image of God. And after you be with him and you become like him, then at some point you are sent into the world to then do what Jesus did, to then carry on the work that we see Jesus doing throughout his ministry here on earth. And so we're about halfway, and tonight's a little bit of a turning point, at least for the next two weeks, into a little bit more of the uh, harder to understand, harder to grasp in our lives, more miraculous, seemingly uh, practices of Christ. And tonight we've got a huge one. We're going to talk about what it looks like to do what Jesus did in healing the sick. Healing the sick. Now, before we begin, I want to point your attention to a, re- a resource um, that has been super helpful for me in my life. Uh, it's a book called Practicing the Power by a guy named Sam Storms. Uh, Sam is a retired pastor from Oklahoma City, and he just has written what I would say is the most helpful book on what it looks like to begin to practice the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And so if you uh, are intrigued by what we're talking about tonight or next week and want to kind of explore this further, uh, Practicing the Power, Sam Storms, 10 out of 10, could not recommend a book uh, more to you on this idea of following the Spirit in our lives. But here's what we're going to do. Tonight, I got to go 30,000 feet for a little while. I just got to kind of walk us through some scriptures on what it looks like to lean into a theology of healing. And then we're going to end really fast and really practical by what this might mean in your life as a practice. And so that's where we're headed. Let me pray because we are going to need it. uh, And then we'll get to work. Lord, thank you so much for tonight. God, thank you for the opportunity to once again be with your people. And this is a a privilege that we don't want to take for granted. This is a blessing that we don't want to just run past. Lord, we want to sit in this moment with your spirit and with your church. God, would you help us as we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first disciples and the life of the church and followers of you for thousands of years. And we look at what healing might look like for us to step into as your disciples here. Now, Lord, would you give us faith? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us hearts that are first and foremost interested in your glory 
and you being made much of in our lives. And help us as we look at the scriptures to be faithful to what it is that you have for us. Would you use your word to bear fruit in our lives? We love you. We need you. Probably sings in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. Healing the sick. Now, before we even get into this practice, I know just thinking about stepping into something like this, a whole bunch of red flags might come up in your mind, in your heart, in your life, right? Maybe over the past few weeks, you've been super tracking with what we've been talking about. You're like, yep, eating and drinking, check. I'm good with that. Preaching the gospel, okay. Teaching the way, discipling others. I can kind of figure that out. So maybe you've been like, all right, difficult, hard practices, and yet kind of grab kind of understandable, but this one, right, miraculous healings in the name of Jesus, ah, I don't know so much about that. I think there's a few reasons why this practice might come with a couple of red flags for us. So for some of us, we have a worldview barrier to this practice, right? We live, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but we live in a secular society. And what I mean by that is it's a society devoid of the presence of the spiritual or supernatural, Right? All of our lives can kind of be set up in such a way that we are governed by and live within scientific methods and scientific rules, what we can measure and what we can study and what we can tangibly experience in front of us. And so when it comes to sickness, if someone is sick, what do we tell them to do? Go to the doctor. Right? Or someone has a headache, right? What do you do? You go take some medicine. You drink more water. You take a nap. We have science and technology and medicine. What's the issue? What's the problem? A few weeks ago, uh, while we were on family vacation, my brothers had the bright idea at the end of our family photo shoot, which is what you do as a family at the beach, to take our last photo jumping into the pool. And I, because I'm the youngest, got put with the shallow end part of the jump in the pool. And so I jumped in the pool, and I just crushed my left knee, like all of my weight landing in very shallow water and messed up and already kind of hurting from years and years of sports left knee. And it's not gotten better over the past few weeks. It's actually gotten worse. And so eventually on Friday, Lindsay kept pushing me, and so I said, all right, I'm going to call the doctor. And so I call the doctor, and right when I hang up after making my appointment, Harper, our two-year-old, comes in the room, and she's like, Dada, who were you talking to? And I said, the doctor. And she goes, are you okay? And I said, yeah, my left knee hurts. And she walks right up to me, and she puts her little toddler hands around my knee, and she looks up at me with the most sincere eyes and says, Dada, don't worry. God will heal you. And my response in that moment was not, yes, faith like a little child speaking prophetically over my knee. That was not my response. My response was, yeah, totally. And I made a doctor's appointment for this week. Good for me. Maybe for others of us, it's a theological barrier, right? You're not sure theologically if you even agree that miraculous healing should occur today. Or maybe you agree theologically, but you have no category for what this should look like in a biblically faithful way in your life. Or for others of us, our theological barriers are because we have seen healing and the theology of it get misused and abused throughout the church. So we've seen folks say things to us or to our friends like, the Lord didn't heal you because you don't have enough faith. Or we've heard things like, hey, if you just give more to the ministry of this local church, then the Lord will heal you. It's just a matter of sowing seed. And still, for a lot of us, I think a large barrier is our lived experience. We know firsthand the sting or the pain of praying for healing that seemed or still seems left unanswered. We've been praying about a particular act of healing. We've been praying for someone who's particularly sick, and we just keep asking and asking and asking, and it seems like the Lord didn't or won't or hasn't answered. 
I remember I was in elementary school when I found out that my grandfather had cancer. And I remember when the diagnosis came back and the response of our entire family as followers of Jesus was to pray. And so we got together day in and day out and prayed and prayed and prayed. And we said, you know, my grandfather, he's in his early 60s at this point. He's healthy besides the cancer. He has so much life left to live. And yet it seemed like in an instant he didn't get better, but got much, much worse and passed away a few months later. Then I remember just a few years after that, my friend's mom, who was a beloved teacher in our high school, that she got sick and diagnosed with cancer as well. And so we did the same thing that we did before as followers of Jesus. And we got together and we prayed and we prayed. And within the course of six months, her cancer was in remission and she's been cancer free for 20 years. And I remember as a teenager wrestling with these questions of what's the difference between the first time and the second time? Like, did we pray better or pray more? Did we have more faith? Like, what was God doing that he would not heal my grandfather? And even though I'm excited that he would heal my friend's mom, what do I do with that mystery? What do I do with that uncertainty? What do I do with those questions? And maybe you have your own experience of that, right? Your own questions, your own doubt, your own lived realities, They start rising to the surface. Why was my friend healed, but not me? It seems like every time in the Gospels, Jesus is approached by a sick person, that they're healed every single time. Why has it not been my experience? And so what happens is rather than try to move into this complex, beautiful, and rich mystery with faith, we simply shrink back from an invitation to do what Jesus did. So what I would ask of us tonight, just for a few minutes, is to lean into the scriptures with faith, because here's the reality. If you start reading in Matthew and beyond, it becomes abundantly clear that healing was a prominent part of the ministry of Jesus and of the early church. In Matthew 4, our main passage for this evening, we read about the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth, and it's a summary of so much of what his ministry comes to be about in the three years that follow. And this is what Matthew says, verse 23. And he, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So Jesus here at the beginning of his ministry is traveling from town to town in the summarizing words of Matthew, teaching, preaching, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And this becomes a regular part of Jesus's life and ministry. Over the course of his time on earth, Jesus heals hundreds, if not thousands of sick individuals. And there are numerous references in the gospels to specific stories and people, stories like the nobleman's son in John chapter four, Peter's mother-in-law in in Matthew eight, the centurion's servant in Luke seven, or Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead in John 11. If you remember everyone's favorite verse, Jesus wept, right? And then he turns around and raises Lazarus. Lazarus from the dead. There's specific stories, but there's also summary statements about the ongoing work of healing in life of Jesus. So we have Matthew 4, which we just read, but also Matthew 15, 29, where he writes, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. 
Or consider Mark chapter 1, verse 33. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Or John 6, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So healing was a consistent and constant practice in the ministry of Jesus, but it did not stop there. It was also a prominent part of the ministry of his first disciples, his first apprentices and followers. So after being with him and becoming more and more like him, remember Jesus sends out his disciples to go do what he did. And he has specific instructions for them, Luke 9 and Luke 10. And in Luke 9, it says this, Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to what? cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Or one chapter later, Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Verse eight, whenever you enter a town, he says to them, and they receive you, eat what is said before you, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So Jesus gives his first disciples, his first followers, apprentices, the power, and then he sends them out to do what? The very things that he had been doing, preach, teach, and heal. And it doesn't stop there. It becomes the trajectory of ministry into the life of the early church. Acts 2, right? Jesus dies. He rises again. He ascends to the right hand of God. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out on the early church. Peter gets up, preaches the gospel. 5,000 people get saved. And what's the very next thing that happens in Acts chapter 3, right? Peter and John heal a man who was paralyzed from birth. Immediately, the early church's ministry gets marked by preaching, teaching, and healing, this continues throughout the book of Acts. Acts 5, the apostles are recorded as doing many signs and wonders of healing in the, in the different towns. Philip, a deacon in Acts chapter 8, is shown preaching and healing in Samaria. Saul, right, who's persecuting the church, who eventually becomes Paul, is healed miraculously by Ananias in Acts 9 as a part of his conversion. He then immediately turns around, and his first act of ministry is healing a man named Aeneas. And then later on in Acts chapter 20, he raises a man named Eutychus from the dead. Hypoth or not hypothetically, it actually happened. Eutychus falls asleep while he's preaching, falls out of a window. It's a crazy story in Acts 20. Paul goes down, forgives him, and then raises him from the dead. It doesn't even stop there. It doesn't just stop in Acts. It continues on throughout church history as something that was a normal part of the life of the church. So Amanda Porterfield, who's a, a PhD, a professor at Florida State, she was the for a little while the president of the American Society of Church History. In her book, Healing in the History of Christianity, writes this, healing has persisted over time and across cultural spaces as a defining element of Christianity and a major contributor to Christianity's endurance, expansion, and success. In other words, healing is a regular part of Jesus' ministry and the first disciples' ministry and the ministry of the early church and the ministry of Christians for 2,000 plus years. And here's my argument for us tonight. It should be a regular part of our ministry today as Christ followers as well. And why I can argue that First, we have to understand and get our minds around these two kingdom realities in order to live into this. The first is how Jesus healed and why Jesus healed. In order for us to step into what has been a part of ministry for Christians for thousands of years, we have to understand how Jesus healed and why Jesus healed. Let's first talk about how Jesus healed. How Jesus healed. 
One of the things I often hear from folks when you talk about or teach on or invite people into healing in the life of the Christian is what I like to call the Jesus excuse. And it sounds something like this. Well, Jesus healed because he was Jesus, and I am not Jesus, and so I cannot heal. To which I say the obvious is first, yes, that is true. In case you are wondering, you are not, in fact, Jesus. But we don't use that excuse with other parts of Jesus' ministry, do we? Right? We're not like, well, Jesus ate with people far from God, but like, I'm not Jesus, so I'm not going to eat with people far from God. Or, well, Jesus preached the gospel, but I'm not Jesus, so I'm not going to preach the gospel. Or, well, Jesus sacrificed and served, but he's Jesus, I'm not Jesus, so I'm not going to sacrifice and serve. But we use this excuse with some of these more miraculous ones, like healing and casting out demons. But here's the deal. To say that not being Jesus excludes you from the practice of healing is a misunderstanding of how Jesus, in fact, heals. Look at Acts chapter 10 with me. If you want to turn over there in your Bible, Acts chapter 10. The gospel has gone out of Jerusalem. It has reached uh, the house of Cornelius. The gospel is starting to spread to the Gentile population. And this is what Peter says as he's explaining Jesus to Cornelius and his family. Acts chapter 10, verse 37. He says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. How? Why? For God was with him. All right. Stick with me here. All right. When Jesus enters into the world, he does not give up his divinity. He does not cease to be God. He who was fully God becomes fully man. That's what we celebrate every Christmas in the incarnation. God, fully God, God the Son becomes fully man. If you want the theological term for it, it's called the hypostatic union. And it means Christ had two natures, a human nature and a divine nature were joined in the one person of Jesus Christ. This is uh, Creed of Chalcedon, AD 451, one of the first and most important creeds or summaries of belief in the Orthodox faith, and they say this. They say, this one and the same Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, must be confessed in two natures, unconfusedly, immutably, indivisibly, inseparably united. All right, so track with me. As a human, though fully God, Jesus becomes indwelt with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. So if you remember that scene in John chapter 4, right? Jesus baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descends on him or comes on him like a dove. And so what Peter is saying in Acts chapter 10 is that while Jesus was fully God, the miraculous deeds he performed, including his healings, were not because he was God, but rather were performed through the power of the Holy Spirit. Tracking? This is not just me. This is, seven, this is theologians for decades. 17th century Puritan John Owen. He says it like this. The Holy Spirit, in a peculiar manner, anointed him with all those extraordinary powers and gifts which were necessary for the exercise and discharging of his office on the earth. So stick with me. Jesus miraculously heals, not because he is God, although he very much is, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, does Jesus have a uniquely successful healing ministry? Yes, for a number of different reasons. One, he was without sin. He was perfect, so his prayers to God were not hindered. Second, he knows God's will and providence perfectly, and so he knows sovereignly when God will heal or not in his providential plan. And so there's a unique frequency and success to the healing ministry of Jesus, but the point still remains. Jesus healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who, if you are a Christian, now lives in you. 
Tracking? So the fact that Jesus has a perfect healing record and you shouldn't, shouldn't keep you from stepping into obedience into this practice. Jesus healed by the power of the Holy Spirit and so can we who follow him. And this is not just me. This is Jesus, John 14. This is what he says, a shocking verse. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So we can step confidently into this practice, humbly acknowledging that the very same spirit that empowered Jesus is now living inside of us. We can wade into these uncertain waters of praying for healing. But we have to not only understand how Jesus healed, but why Jesus healed. Everybody good? Take a breath. We good? A lot of Bible, a lot of theology. We're good. Okay. I didn't even look to see if you are good. I just assume. Why Jesus healed. All the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the created world, God had an original design from the world we experience today. All right, the world we experience today is not God's original design. When God created the world, Genesis 1 and 2, he declares over it that it is, in Hebrew, mehotov. It is very good, exactly right, flourishing as it should be. And that very goodness was not simply our spiritual state before God, but also our physical state. Before sin enters the world, there is no sickness, there is no physical pain, there is no death. That was not a part of God's original design. But if you know the story, you know that things go bad very quickly. Adam and Eve rebel against God in Genesis 3. They eat from the tree they're not supposed to eat. Sin, not as an idea, but as a reality, enters the world. And because of sin, everything is now broken. Everything in creation starts to break down and decay, both spiritually and physically. Because of sin, we now experience spiritual decay and death and physical decay and death. But it was not a part of God's original design, which means a few things. First, sickness is an enemy of God. Sickness is an enemy of God. God has never, is never, and will never be glorified by sickness. Now, I don't mean he's not glorified in how his people respond in sickness, I don't mean he's not glorified when we respond in faith in the midst of our physical suffering and pain. God is not glorified in the sickness itself. But the second thing it means that sickness is not a part of God's original design is that sickness is not natural. Sickness is not how the world was designed to work. I remember a few months ago, when my grandmother passed away, I was, be, I was up in Minnesota for the funeral, and we were at the graveside, and one of my cousins went up to my mom, who was very close with my grandmother, who she was the only daughter in the family, and in trying to console her, she said really good, meaningful words. She said, hey, grandma lived a long life, which was true. She was in her mid-90s, and you know, this is just a natural part of life. This is just what happens to all of us. And I remember hearing that, thinking, man, those are really kind, gracious words, but they're not true. Death is not a natural part of the world. Death is not what is supposed to be true of reality. Death is not natural. They are part, death is a part of the broken world. It's not as it should be. And so here's what this means. Because sickness is an enemy of God, not a natural part of his design, doing away with sickness and death is a part of God's redemptive purposes and plan as his kingdom comes to earth. So here's what that means. God's plan in his kingdom, which, as we said all throughout this series, is here in part and one day to arrive in full. Part of God's plan in his already but not yet kingdom is to restore what is broken within us spiritually, but also to restore what is broken physically. Or I'll say it this way. Our bodies being healed are a part of the redemption story of God. 
And for some people, that means miraculously in a moment. And for others, that means just as miraculously over the long haul of prayer and care and medical physicians. And still for others, that healing and redemption means an eternity face-to-face with Jesus. Because one day, the Bible says that we're not going to be resurrected as floating souls, just kind of floating around ethereally for all eternity. We're going to have resurrected bodies, made new bodies. We're going to dwell forever with God in redeemed bodies. And so because this is a part of the redemption story of God, when Jesus heals in the Gospels, he does so as a demonstration of the very message he's preaching, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus heals as a direct confrontation and assault on all that is evil and all that is broken, showing us that with the arrival of God's kingdom comes the arrival of healing for souls and for bodies. In other words, when Jesus heals, what he's doing is accelerating the bigger story of God. He's taking what's to come for all of God's people, for all of creation, the redemptive purposes of God. He's taking what's to come for all who trust in Jesus and accelerating it into the present in the life and story of one particular individual. That's what he's doing in his healing. He's taking the big redemptive purposes of God and fast-forwarding them into the life of one individual. This is Jürgen Moltmann. He's German, so you have to believe him. He says it this way. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores sick creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. Track with that. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. That's the beauty of Christ's healings. That's the wonder of Christ's healings. They're the only truly natural, as God designed thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. So while the gospel is the message of the kingdom of God, miraculous healings are the embodiment of it. And the demonstration of it is that Jesus heals in proclamation that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so because of the how, empowered by the spirit, and because of the why, demonstration of the kingdom of God is the very reason I would argue we are invited into this practice today, right? Because we are empowered by the same Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is still at hand. It's still already, but not yet. And so we are invited into the very same things of Christ. We step into this because Jesus came healing as a signpost to the arriving kingdom that is still making advancements in our world today. Because as the people of God, we should want to see God's kingdom come to bear more and more on the earth. We want to join his redemptive purposes. We want to see people not only spiritually healed, so we preach the gospel, but physically healed, so we pray in faith. Now, does that mean everyone that we pray for will be saved? No, Does that mean everyone we pray for will be healed? No. We trust God's purposes. We trust his providence, and we trust his kindness. And we do trust that God will heal his people. We just don't know the when. For some, it'll be now in an instant. For others, it will be soon. And still for others, it will be into eternity. And yet we're invited with the Spirit to pray in humble, expectant faith, asking God to do what he's done for thousands of years and to heal. All right, I know that was a lot. Let me try to land it practical for us. What does this look like? Let me try to bring this down into the lived reality. If you're like, all right, I'm on board. What do I do? Here's our practice for this week. Our practice for this week is praying for healing. Praying for healing. This is all on our practice guide for the week. It's always on our sermon page, citizenscharlotte.com. 
But I just want to kind of talk through these steps because they might be new to you. They might be a little bit uncertain. So I just want to explain them. Uh, when it comes to the practice of healing, actually praying for miraculous healing in the life of somebody, I, I think this charge from Sam Storms, especially in his book, Practicing the Power, that I, I would recommend it to you. He says this. He says, we must leave room for mystery in God's ways. Some things will always remain unexplained. Why God does or does not choose to heal is ultimately subject to his wisdom and sovereign purposes. Why God chooses to heal in part or in whole, now or later, this person, but not that one, is often beyond our capacity to understand. Resist the tendency to replace divine mystery with human formulas. I love that charge from Sam. He says, we want to resist a step-by-step -step formula, meaning when it comes to stepping into this practice, it's not like, Pray the prayer A with faith B and you'll get the healing C, right? There's not some special formula. You have to say the right words with the right amount of faith at the right time and the right blend of oils and suddenly that person will be healed. That's not what we're invited into. We're invited into mystery and faith and practice. And so I just want to spend a few minutes not giving us a formula, but just some parameters of what this might look like. So this is not a do step one, do step two, do step three healed. This is just some guiding practices for what it might look like for you to step into this practice of healing the sick with God. Most of this comes directly out of James 5, which says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So he gives a special charge to elders, but also a charge to all of us. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And if you're in Christ, good news for you is you're a righteous person because of Jesus. So if you're in Christ, then your prayer is great power as it is working. So here's some steps you might take. Let's go through them quick. Number one, gather together. Number one, steps to praying for healing. Number one, gather. Gather together with the person who is physically sick, as well as a group of like-minded Christians who have faith that God can and still does want to heal. It's best to set aside a time to adequately pray for the individual, make sure all the participants there are on the same page. We're going to pray for healing. We're going to ask that the Lord would do the miraculous. Step two is conversation conversation. Take some time to ask the individual some pointed questions. You're trying to discern the specifics about the situation as much as possible. So some questions you can ask include, what specifically hurts? How long have you struggled with this? Have you seen a medical professional? What did they say or diagnose? How can we help and pray specifically? Do you have any sins you need to confess? Are there other problems you have not shared about? And the goal is to discern, okay, what's going on here? What's the underlying issues we can pray for? How can we direct the specifics of our prayers? Third step after that conversation is discernment. Discernment. As much as possible, discern what could be causing the ailment and if there are any outside factors besides the physical sickness itself. So it could include, like James says, unconfessed and unrepentant sin. James says that's a category that we need to have that unconfessed sins could lead to physical suffering in our lives. Could, not have to. Uh, other things that it could include is family history. Is there a trajectory throughout the family of certain struggles? It could be the stress and pressures of daily life. 
Uh, Sam Storms in his book tells this story about a woman who comes into his church asking for prayer for her anxiety. She's been clinically diagnosed and she's anxious and so she wants prayer for healing. And so they're asking questions and they're trying to diagnose it. They come to find out that over the past month, she had lived through three of the four most stressful things you can do as a human. She had gotten married, moved cities and started a new job. And they're like, yes, let's pray for your anxiety. Let's pray for miraculous healing. Also, let's pray that you figure out the logistics of your life too. And so that discernment step helps us figure out what is the whole picture we can pray for this person? What is the whole picture of what's going on in their lives? You want to be careful not to draw any direct cause and effect conclusions. So just because someone says something's going on, you don't want to say, yes, that's the reason you're sick. We want to avoid any of that. Step four is the one you were waiting on, which is prayer. So after you've had the conversations, after you've discerned with the spirit, you want to pray. What this could look like is kind of gathering around them in a circle. You can appropriately lay hands on them. If a pastor is present, you can have them anoint the individual with oil. That's not um, some special thing, just sets them apart uh, for this work of God. It's best to have the individual receiving prayer to keep their eyes closed, to focus on what the Spirit might be doing, and for those who are praying, to keep their eyes open, to be watching and discerning if something's happening with the person physically, uh, if they're twitching or straightening up or something like that. Folks in the group can pray to God asking him to heal, right? Asking him to heal in specific ways. They can also pray from God, meaning spirit-empowered commands of faith, like in the name of Jesus, be healed. And in this step, you want to be patient. You don't want to rush. You don't want to be like, all right, let's lay hands, pray, good, everything, well, how's it going? All right, we want to wait. We want to be willing to be slow, let the spirit speak and to work. And then lastly, we want to follow up. Step five is to follow up. So after prayer, immediately ask the individual how they are feeling and what they are thinking. And if the individual was healed, then we take time to thank the Lord and celebrate it as a community. And if you want to know, like me, if you're still like, I don't know if I buy it, the minute I say, if the individual was miraculously healed, we all go, ah. So we lean in with faith. If the individual was not healed, we take a few moments to encourage them and to care for them. We never suggest or imply they weren't healed because of their lack of faith for a number of reasons. It could be because of your lack of faith. It also could be because of God's providence. The scriptures are full of very godly, faithful people who pray for healing and are never healed. Paul's a really good example of that. He says he pleads over and over and over for God to take away his physical pain, and yet God does not. So we want to encourage them. We want to encourage the group not to grow disheartened or disillusioned. We also don't want to think one and done with prayer, right? God delights in our persistence. So don't think we prayed one time, they weren't healed, so now we give up and now we go to the doctor, right? We can go to the doctor, but we want to keep seeking the Lord as well. Don't be afraid. Let's do it again tomorrow. Let's do it again the next day. Let's keep praying. Let's keep asking the Lord to work. He delights in our persistence. And then whether or not the individual was healed, encourage continued humility and obedience from them and the group. So that's just some steps. If you want to step into this practice of healing, that practice guide's available. We're going to lean into this as groups uh, this week, as you're comfortable and as you discern from the Lord. But it's something I just wanted to introduce the category for, for us as a church. I think some of us, this is like, yeah, I've been doing this since I was like five. What's the problem? And I think for others of us, it's like, I, I don't know. And so I just want to lay this before you from the scriptures, from Jesus, from, from our heart as pastors to say, this is something we feel like the Lord is inviting us into as a church, to seek him more in, that the spirit might move and work in power, and that he might heal in some miraculous ways. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to respond, as we always do, with singing and communion and prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We need you. And we want to be students of your word and folks who believe you and take you at your promises, Lord. And 
As we look at scripture, as we look at the pattern of Jesus's life, as we look at the first disciples in the early church and throughout church history, and we see these saints of you leaning into this practice of healing, Lord, we ask this question, Lord, we say, is that also for us? And then we want to be a people who are willing in faith to step into the mystery, who are willing to lean into the doubt and the uncertainty, Lord, who are willing to lean into all the ways this practice has been misused and abused, who are willing to lean into all the ways that we haven't seen healing come the way we want to, or we've been disappointed, or we're still asking and praying, and it feels like you're not doing anything, Lord. We want to be a people of faith. When ultimately that faith is a gift from you. God, and so would you give us that gift? God, would you help us to see what it is you have for us? Lord, would you help us lean in in ways that are faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, Lord, that we would seek healing, that we would trust you, we would not be afraid to lean into this together. Lord, we want to be a people that do what our Savior did, and we want to lean in by the power of the Spirit, so would you help us? We love you, we need you. Probably sings in Christ's name, amen.